Good morning. It's good to see you all here, and I want to welcome our visitors today. I see a few new faces and uh, lots of familiar faces, and I'm glad for that. Praise God for the gathering of His people. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 this week. We'll look at verses 4 through 7, so if you've got a a Bible with you, please turn there uh, to Hebrews chapter 11. I'll start with verse 1, just to keep it all in context. Actually, let me back up. I'll, let me start with uh, verse, chapter 10, verse 36. And we'll just read through to ch- uh, verse 7 there, and, and we'll get started. So Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 36, the writer says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that, what it was, uh, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Will you pray with me? Father, we delight to be your people. We delight, O oh God, to be gathered together for the, the singing of worship and praise, for the giving of, of tithes and offerings, God, uh, for the preaching and the the hearing of the word and God in your grace you have gathered us again for those very purposes that you might be glorified in those things and that we might be satisfied in you and so God we turn to you now in this moment asking that you would help us God believing that you have like the the psalmist pointed out this is the day that you have made And we want to rejoice and be glad in it, but we want to recognize that you have appointed this time, that you have preserved and prepared this place, and that you, O God, are speaking through your word. And so we ask, Father, that you would indeed speak loudly and clearly and plainly, persuasively, this morning. God, as as the word is, is preached, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way 
that Christ would come and speak and be heard, God, that I would not draw attention or glory to myself, but point the glory and the attention to Christ. I confess my weakness, God, my need of you this morning, that I cannot effectively communicate, I cannot preach true preaching without the help and the, the, the preservation of the Spirit. So God, would you send your Spirit in this moment to hold me up, to speak through me, to keep my mind clear, God, and my words uh, clear and plain. But God, that's only half of what needs to happen. I'm praying and believing that you will sustain me in this moment, but I pray that you would open ears, that you would, uh, that you would deal with unbelief, God, that you would cause sinners to repent and saints to rejoice, and that through the word you would draw the lost to yourself and that you would feed your precious lambs. God, do this because in these things you are glorified. And through these things, God, we are satisfied. And so we ask your blessing today on your word, through Christ, our King. Amen. So many of you probably know that Hebrews was written in part to persuade Jewish Christians or Jewish believers to endure in their faith. Many had turned back because of persecution uh, to, uh, to Judaism. And perhaps many others at this time, when the, when the writer wrote this book, were considering a, a change or a move like that themselves. So the author, who was probably a pastor, and this was likely an early sermon, uh, provides a brilliant argument to them through chapter 11, persuading them to endure in their profession of faith. See, they, they reasoned that the faith that was good enough for their fathers was good enough for them. The question is, if they abandoned faith in Jesus, would they still have the faith of their fathers? So Ligon Duncan explains this dilemma. He says this, You see in their minds, these Hebrew believers that were uh, contemplating turning back to Judaism, in their minds they could say, Okay, we're going to lay down this particular belief that we've had in Jesus as the Messiah, and we're going to go back to the faith of our fathers. The author of Hebrews in this chapter pulls that argument out from under them. He says that if you go back to the faith of your fathers, you will find that their faith was in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you depart from Christ, you're not departing from Christ to the patriarchs. You're departing from Christ and the patriarchs to something else, end quote. And I think that's a very helpful assessment of what the, the writer of Hebrews was laboring to do and the force of the argument that he's making throughout this book, but this chapter in particular. You see, Hebrews chapter 11, it, it flows right out of the spring. It's the water, if you will, that flows from the spring of chapter 10, especially verses 36 through 39 that we looked at. And I need you to understand that, that when the Bible was written, it didn't have chapters and verses. That came along centuries later. It was a letter, you read it from start to finish, and you didn't have a break there where in our minds we say, this, this topic is done and we're going to pick up another topic now. No, the idea that he sets down there in chapter 10, starting in verse 36, that you people need to endure, and then he talks about faith and, and shrinking back or, or staying firm in their faith is exactly 
where he's going and pointing to, and that's exactly why he says in chapter 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's, he's explaining, he's setting up, I just talked to you about faith, I told you that you need to endure, and you need to understand now by example, which I'm about to provide, this is what faith is, this is what faith does. And so chapter 11 is sort of like 1 Corinthians 13. It's not a dictionary definition or even a technical definition of what faith is. Just like Corinthians 13 is not a technical definition of love, it just shows us what love is and what love does. And so chapter 11 here in Hebrews shows us how faith functions in the life of believers. It's not an anomaly. It's not the, we call it the Faith Hall of Fame, and it, it is that, but we... I'm afraid that sometimes we hear that and we think that's for those super saints and that's different than what I've got. That's a faith beyond mine. That's false. This is what faith, saving faith, the only kind of faith that gets you into heaven, this is what it looks like and this is how it acts. And so it, it is, it, it, they look super to us as we look back, but it's the very same faith functioning in our lives if we're believers this morning. So the writer here uh, is reminding his audience that God's righteous one shall live by faith, and those who have faith preserve their souls. So he wrote chapter 11 to demonstrate again what it looks like and what it does in the messy details of life. So through many examples, the writer underscores the need of enduring faith in the life of all believers. His message being without, uh, that, that faith without endurance is counterfeit. That's the, if, you, if you don't take anything else away, take that and, and, and remember that, that the point that he's getting at is that a faith without endurance is a counterfeit faith. In a sense, they're dealing in their congregation with the same kind of thing that John talked about in 1 John. They had some that went out from, from them. They departed from their fellowship. And the writer of Hebrews, in a different way, but no less than John does, says that's not true faith. That's not saving faith. If you can cash it in for something different, then it, it wasn't saving faith. You didn't have a relationship with Christ. And so we need to see that this morning. And, and James says this. James in his epistle says that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the author of Hebrews here demonstrates living faith for his people through Old Testament figures. And that's why Lig Duncan's quote was so helpful, because he's drawing the case that your forefathers had faith in Jesus. They didn't know his name, but they had faith in the Messiah, the one who would come. We have the added bonus of knowing his name. This is Jesus whom we proclaim to you. And so he draws these Old Testament figures, and it's interesting to note how he groups them together into four broad epochs of time throughout redemptive history. So in verses 4 through 7, it's the antediluvian period. That means before the fall. So before the flood, or sorry, before the flood, rather, not the fall, before the flood. And so he deals with these saints that, that, that came before the flood. Then he moves on in verses 8 to 22 to talk about the patriarchal period the fathers of the faith. Then he goes into verses 23 through 31, and he, he groups them into the Exodus period. And then a broader category as he ends the chapter, 32 through 40, it's the prophets, the judges, and the kings. And so what he's basically doing here is saying from the beginning of time and every age that the people of God have existed, this is what faith looks like. It's not just a, 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 a little microcosm of time 
in the New Testament and faith begins to look like these things, he's saying, no, you go back as far into, into the history of faith as you can get and you come forward to right now when I'm preaching this message to you, him to his audience, and faith has always operated in this way and that's what it, I, God expects it to do in your life. And that's why you can't cash it in and go back to Judaism. And so we can't cash in our faith for whatever's appealing to us at this moment either. In our text today, the writer seems to zero in on one particular way each saint manifested uh, enduring faith in their generation. So that's what I'm going to try to do as we walk through these verses here uh, and just make some application as we go. So our first point on the back of the bulletin, if you've got it, is enduring faith is evidenced by an accepted sacrifice. He's told them they need to endure. He's told them what faith looks like and that they have to have it and he gives an example that enduring faith is evidenced by an accepted sacrifice now it may sound a little bit strange so let's let's break that down let's look at verse four by faith abel offered to god a more acceptable sacrifice than cain through which he was commended as righteous god commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died he still speaks so how's abel an example of faith then that's the question and, and we see it. He makes an offering to God. But Abel displays enduring faith in two important ways that we need to see this morning. First, his faith endured the displeasure and violence of Cain, even to the point of death. Don't miss that. That's such a quick story, such a, a blurb in redemptive history. But understand that more than likely he had a moment there to say, I recant everything that I've, that I've done. And I'm sorry, brother, that I've made you so angry. If it pleases you, then I'll just cash in my chips right now and we can walk away from this whole thing. Likely it wasn't a stealth assassin murder. He, he, he had the opportunity to cave, but he didn't. He stood in his faith with every bludgeoning blow of Cain until his life was gone. So don't miss that. He endured. It was short. It, it's a blurb in our text. It's a blurb in our scriptures. But understand that he endured every hateful blow of whatever instrument Cain used to take his life. And with every blow, he was trusting in God's Redeemer. He endured even to the point of death. He didn't recant or retract his faith to pacify Cain or to save his own life. And secondly, he, he shows us enduring faith in another way, his example of faithful worship that endures to this day. So what's the evidence of, of Abel's faith? The best evidence that Abel had authentic, enduring faith is not that he was worshiping God on a particular day. This, this church house gets filled with lots of people many of which haven't made a profession of faith in Christ yet. But we, we sing and we go through the motions and we, and we do these things. So worship in itself, outward worship, isn't an evidence of true saving faith. The best evidence, again, that Abel had authentic enduring faith is not what Abel offered to God, but what God offered to Abel in that he accepted his worship. God isn't pleased with false worship. God doesn't smile on false worship. God doesn't, doesn't countenance false worship. He's not happy that we're going through religious motions. He wants to puke at religious motions. Read Isaiah chapter 1. He is, he's had it up to here with false religion. So the evidence that, that Abel's faith was authentic was not so much what Abel did, but how God responded. God accepted his sacrifice. 
Remember that there were two men offering sacrifices that day, but only one was accepted. So let's look at those verses in Genesis 4, 3 through 5. You can listen or turn there if you want. It says, In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? I'm going to get them tongue-tied here in a minute and flip them around. I'm sure I will. But I don't think it has anything to do with what they brought. I've heard that. And people ask, well, why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Well, because Abel brought a blood sacrifice and Cain just brought some fruits and vegetables. I don't think that has anything to do with it because fruits and vegetables were, were acceptable sacrifices to God in the law. But listen to what the text says. We're going past the text into speculation. Here's what the text says. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. We, we skip past Abel and go straight to the offering, and then we surmise that perhaps it was blood offering, and that's what pleased because that points us to Jesus, and that's a true enough statement that it points us to Jesus and that it was blood sacrifice, and God's pleased with blood sacrifice. But it denies or it skips past that, that the Scriptures say that God first regarded Abel and that's why Abel's offering was, was acceptable. It's not about what he brought. It's about, at least outwardly, it's what he brought in his heart. He had faith. And that's why he's an example here. If it was about his offering, he wouldn't be an example of faith. He'd be an example of offering. But God, God commended him. God accepted what he brought that day because it wasn't false worship. It wasn't, it wasn't religiosity. It wasn't uh, just going through the motions. He came trusting in God, and the, and the offering was a symbol or an emblem of that, but it didn't, uh, it didn't win God's approval for Cain because Cain came without faith. And therein is the problem. And notice it says that. It's very clear. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So God sees the man before he sees the gift. And he accepts the gift on the basis of the condition of that man's heart. Abel had faith, saving faith. Cain had none. And that's the issue. That's the issue. Here is the point of this. The heart of the one worshiping matters to God. And this is explained in verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So you see how the Genesis account points us in that direction. The writer of Hebrews picks up on that and makes commentary in the middle of his story here. And, and it's, it's the one that follows with Enoch, but it's the same principle that embodies all three of these men. That without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so why was God not pleased with Cain? Because he had no faith. You see, the text explains itself. That's the testimony of the scripture. That's the answer to the question why God approved of Abel and his sacrifice and not Cain and his. While this verse did not exist when Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices to God, Hebrews hadn't been written yet, but the principle was still there. The principle has, is eternal and has always existed that faith is what it takes to please God. Cain and his offering were rejected because there was no faith. 1 John 3.12 says, We should not be like Cain, who didn't bring the right articles or the right substances to sacrifice with. No, John doesn't say that either. John says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. 
John assesses Cain's heart again and not Cain's, uh, uh, the, the emblems of Cain's offering. Proverbs 15.8 adds, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Implication, the sacrifice of the righteous is accepted by the Lord. And so you see all throughout Scripture it points to the heart and not the substance of the offering. That's the point, and that's why it's about faith. And that's what we're learning in Cain's or Abel's example here. So what does this mean for us today? <clears throat> well, I want to say to some of you, don't deceive yourselves. The writer of Hebrews tells us that there's a deceitfulness of sin. You need to know, some of you need to know this morning, that God sees through your disguise. He knows your heart. He has perfect knowledge of your heart and what's going on there because his word, as the writer says in chapter 4, pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, not even you. This means that some of you need to stop playing religious games with God. God is not amused by your hypocritical religiosity. He does not accept your faithless worship. He's not impressed simply by being in church today. You can't earn his favor through church attendance. You need to confess your sins, repent, and trust in Jesus Christ. Because that's what every other saint has done. And that's what God is calling you to, some of you to this morning. That might be some of our children. That might be some of our seniors. That might be some of you all in between. I can't assess your heart, but I can't suppose that just because you're here, you're right with Jesus either. Because two men made offerings one day, and only one was pleasing in God's sight. To others of you, I, wanna, I want you to hear me say this. Don't be discouraged. God always sees genuine faith, even if it's small. If faith the size of a grain of mustard seed can move a mountain, then all it takes is a little faith in Christ for God to accept you. And some of you all need that encouragement this morning. So if you're in Christ, your worship pleases God because you're in Christ. It's not about you. It's not about your gifts. It's not about what you can offer the kingdom of God. It's about your faith and who it's placed in. And if it's in Christ, even if it's meager, even if it's small, even if it's sin-besotted, God is pleased with your faith and pleased with your worship. It's true that, that, uh, it's true that without faith it's impossible to please God, but the reverse is also true. With faith it's impossible not to please God. So do you have faith this morning in God's Redeemer? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Faith brings us into union with Christ, and since Christ is the beloved Son in whom God is well-pleased, then if you're in Christ, then God is well-pleased with you this morning. That's your only plea. That's your only hope. So stop trying to, to wow God with your works and your, your wonderful service and just simply rest in Jesus Christ this morning. Have faith in Him. He is the beloved, and you will be beloved in Him as well. C.T. Studd once wrote a poem. What a cool last name. Everybody wants to be a stud, right? <laughs> Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And this leads me to one last point regarding Abel. The very fact that a mundane act of worship by an obscure man at the dawn of time is being preached about today is owing to the principle that this poem teaches. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's the message of enduring faith, faith that endures to the end, 
and acts that were done by faith will be remembered eternally. Christian, this means that your mundane and your inglorious service done from an attitude of faith holds eternal significance. Some of you moms need that this morning. You're struggling and striving to hold on and continue to teach your kids and and, and keep the family together, and you think this is the, the most mundane and inglorious task I could ever undertake. And what you need to know is that it's, one, it's not. It's one of the most important and significant tasks that you could ever undertake. And it's also, it, when done from an attitude of faith, of eternal significance. And you need, to, you need to endure. It's hard, and I know it's hard, and I hear that it's hard, and I, my heart breaks with some of your stories at times. But you need to endure. You must endure. So next we see this, our second point. Enduring faith is evidenced by a faithful walk. And that comes out of verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Like Abel, Enoch doesn't take much space up in our Bibles. There's not a lot said about him. Uh, but we know next to, And we know next to nothing about him. But what's important is this. Enoch walked with God. And the, writer, the point the writer seems to emphasize in this verse, or these verses here, uh, is this. It's that the outcome of Enoch's faithful walk was that he did not see death. We're going to come back to that, so just kind of keep that under your hat. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. That's what I see as the main point here in verse 5. We hear, taken up. Wow, that's awesome, and it just enraptures our minds. That, how cool, and as a kid, like, I just try to imagine Enoch walking one day, and then boom, he's gone, and, and that's where my mind gravitates. But as cool as that is, that's not the focus or the emphasis of the verse. Enoch was taken up so that, there's a purpose statement. This taken up serves something beyond itself, so that he should not see death. There's your, there's your point. There's what the writer's driving at. There's the emphasis of this passage. Now, you need to know this. There are two Enochs in Genesis. Cain had a son named Enoch, and then there's uh, Enoch that we're talking about, a descendant of Seth. And just a side note, the word, uh, the name Enoch means dedicated. And if you look at Cain's Enoch, there's all kinds of dedication to man, dedication to man's pride. And Cain builds a city, and he calls it Enoch, and dedication of his son. And, and that line just continues to, to go farther and farther and farther away from God as man exalts himself. And they're violent and oppressive and, and angry, and they hate God, and they sin flagrantly. And it's those descendants that wind up building the, the city of Babel and the tower to the heavens and then you've got this other, this other Enoch, this other line that comes through Seth. What's interesting is when you read about Seth, it says that God gave them another son, basically to stand in place of Abel. Seth means substitute. The righteous were coming through Abel's line and not Cain's, and, and Cain slew him. And so God raised up another son because God's plans will not be thwarted. And you watch through Seth's line, and you see these men of faith coming down through here. We get down through through. Enoch, and we get into Noah coming out of this line. From Gen- There's a, another significant detail. From Genesis 3.15 onward, 3.15 is where God renders a curse on the serpent and his seed and, and, and says that there's going to be warfare between the serpent and his offspring and the woman and her offspring. And from that point onward, Moses consistently draws attention throughout the book of Genesis to the cosmic struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. 
In fact, this cosmic uh, struggle is highlighted in chapter 4, what, what we just came out of, where Cain kills Abel. Or Abel, yes, I got it right, where Cain kills Abel. That's a, that's a, he, he did that on purpose. He just said back here there's always going to be warfare between these two fighting, conflicting seeds. And in chapter 4, he's, he shows us those two seeds. Cain is of the wicked one. Abel is of the righteous seed. And they are in conflict. And Cain kills Abel as a picture of this ongoing struggle that saints face in every generation of the church. That's why the church is persecuted. Because there's a, a group of people out here that belong to the, to the evil one and they hate God and they hate God's people. And then over here on the other hand, you've got those who are faithful to God, the seed of God, those with faith. And they're constantly in conflict and, and warfare and struggle because the seed of Satan does not want to coexist with the people of God. They hate God, they hate God's rules, and they hate those who point them to God's rules. And so there's always struggle. So one way we see Enoch's faithfulness, let's get back to Enoch, is when we realize that for 365 years this dude lived with, in a world filled with violence. A world that was oppressive and proud and rebellious, with, full of people who hated God and shook their fist in the face of God. And for 365 years he put up with that. And then God took him. We think, what an escape story. Man, I just can't wait to get out of here. Do you understand that, that, that this man put up with sin longer than any of us ever will? Three times at least more sin. You could say more than that. I mean, all kinds of, of sin and oppression and violence, but he did not become like them. Think about how, how quickly my heart or your heart is, is turned wrong, uh, in the wrong company toward that which is displeasing to God. And this dude lived in it for 365 years and he was faithful. He pleased God with his walk. That means he pleased God with his life. Imagine that. That's impressive. But it's not owing to Enoch, it's owing to God who changes the hearts of men. God had a purpose. He had a people. And he was saving those people. The thing most repeated about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 in his biography is that he walked with God. It says it twice in about four verses. So we need to understand what it means to walk with God. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, in the context of Hebrews, if we come back to Hebrews 11 and look at verses 5 and 6, it includes these elements, believing in God. Because without faith it's impossible to please God. Uh, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he, that he rewards those who seek him. So believing God is part of what it means to walk with God. Pleasing God is part of what it means to walk with God. And actually in the Septuagint, when they translated the Hebrew that said Enoch walked with God, they, they translated it in the Septuagint, which was the Greek uh, translation of that, that Enoch pleased God. And that's likely where the writer of Hebrews is pulling from when he says Enoch pleased God. It's the Septuagint translation, and it both are true. Enoch's walk was pleasing to God. So seeking God is another thing. Those who, who, who uh, uh, come in faith must believe that he is. They must believe that there's a reward in seeking God. And so we see that we have to believe that walking with God is believing, it's pleasing, it's seeking, and it also is hoping or trusting in God's reward. But there's more. Walking with God is expounded in Malachi chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This doesn't talk about Enoch in particular. It's actually about God's servant Levi. But here's what it says. God says there in Malachi 2, 5, and 6, uh, My covenant 
with him, that is Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in all of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. So we see seven things in this text, attributes of a faithful walk with God. And it's fear of God. He uses the word all of my name. That means being broken and, un, broken and undone is what that word all means. So think Isaiah when he sees the vision of God and he says, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among, among unclean people. It's this, oh my goodness, I'm going to fall apart in the presence of God. He is so holy and I am not. And that's a mark of a, of a faithful walk. It says that, that he had biblical counsel. He had wisdom to give people. There was personal integrity, peace with God, uprightness of character, and evangelism of others. These are marks of what it means to walk with God in a pleasing way. Micah 6, 8 adds three more. He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And I'll stop mining the, the gold of the Old Testament with this one. Amos 3, 3 says, can two walk together unless they're agreed? So agreement with God was also an ingredient of Enoch's pleasing walk. And if we're to please God, then we must exhibit these characteristics, these attributes, these traits in our own lives. So what lessons can we take away from Enoch's bio? Well, many people speculate that Enoch being taken by God is evidence of a secret rapture of the church. I disagree. I don't think it has anything to do with the rapture of the church. More obvious is the connection with John 851 where Jesus said if anyone keeps my word he will never see death go back there to verse 5 real quick by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death that's the purpose statement of his being taken up it's not to picture a rapture it's to to give us an inclination that those who hope in God those who have faith in God's redeemer will not die it interprets itself. It tells us what it means. And so we, we've skipped right past the meaning in the text, and we've supposed again some system of theology that's inconsistent with the words that we're reading. The fact that, that Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, is more consistent with the point of the text that states that Enoch was taken so that he should not see death. So Enoch's story is not about eschatology. It's about faith that endures to eternal life. So in light of this, I have to ask you, do you have this kind of faith? Do you have the faith that endures to eternal life? Do you exhibit the same evidence of faith that Enoch did? Because you must, if you want to claim heaven as your reward. Christ is your king. God is your God. If not, perhaps you do not possess, if you can't exhibit the same evidence that Enoch did, and I don't mean being taken, I mean the pleasing things that he did in his, his earthly sojourn. If, you can't, if your life doesn't produce those, then perhaps you don't possess saving faith. Because this is what saving faith does in, in believers' lives throughout every age of the, the people of God, every age of the church. Please hear me. Only those with saving faith will inherit eternal life. Only those with saving faith will inherit eternal life. That brings us to our final point here. And that's the, 
the final point is this. Enduring faith is evidenced by, an inherited, by inheriting righteousness. We see that in verse 7 in the, in the example of Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. <clears throat> by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So first of all, I want you to notice the connection that the writer makes here to verse 1. There in verse 1 we read that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, or the title deed. It's, it's not this subjective inner feeling, it's this concrete reality that, that faith is and produces in our life. And, and so what it says here is that Noah is an example of enduring faith because he acted on something as yet unseen. Faith produced concrete, tangible action and reality in Noah's life, and he continued to act in faith every day for at least 120 years. It talks about how it was 120 years you know, while he constructed the ark, while he did his work there. So can you imagine every day for 120 years rolling out of bed to labor intensely on a project everyone could see but no one could understand? No one, under, no, no one appreciated or understood the ark. It was without context. There was no such thing as a flood in their day. They hadn't seen rain yet. Noah, you're, you feeling okay, buddy? <laughs> Maybe you need to sit down and rethink this, pal. No doubt this guy got made fun of constantly. I mean, you, can, you, you hear the way people at work talk about folks for doing less stupid-looking things, and, and you know that the people around Noah were, were just giving him down the road. Every day for 120 years, he's the butt of every joke. The ridicule of, of everybody. I imagine he was taunted, ridiculed. He was certainly marginalized and ignored because who else got on the boat with him? Just his family. This guy's a crackpot. But every day he gets up, puts his robe on, and goes to work. 120 years of enduring faith in the face of disappointment, in the face of a, of a hardened and calloused uh, community that would not listen, that would not repent, that would not cherish the God that Noah cherished, that would not love the Redeemer that he was hoping in. Every day he gets up and he does a job that proclaims the gospel, that proclaims the coming wrath of God and the salvation that he offers. And every day, everybody around him, except for the seven that got on the boat with him, said, not for me. Hashtag not my king. Not my savior. Not my problem. He went to work every day. Worked hard. Worked with his hands. It pictured the gospel. It pictured the message. Men, one of the biggest battles we fight against is the fear of insignificance. One of the reasons that we fail to run swiftly is because our feet are gummed up in our loathing of the mundaneness of life. If I could just get out of this factory, if I could just get this, if that would just change, and we're, we, get, we get bogged down and it's like trying to run through mud because we don't like the mundane. We want an escape. Noah says, don't try to escape. Work diligently where you're at. Serve faithfully wherever God's called you to be, even if it's uncomfortable. Stop fearing insignificance. Stop fearing ridicule. Stop fearing that people misunderstand you or that your faith looks stupid. Because it does. 
and it looked dumb to you before God changed your heart. Get up every day, put your pants on, go to work, serve your king. There is a, there is a redemptive aspect to that when we do that in faith. When we do that in a way that witnesses to the coming judgment of God and the salvation that he offers through Christ. You may have noticed both Abel and Enoch were commended by God. This means that God testified or witnessed to the validity, of the, the validity of their faith by his actions toward them. So we see God accepting Abel's offering and, and he took Enoch. But in verse 7, he doesn't use this word of Noah. It's not there. It says that Noah, however, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And oh, what a glorious phrase that is. This is an important phrase. The writer's making the point that Noah had justifying faith. Faith that was looking forward to God's coming Savior. And this is important to see. Old Testament saints were justified by faith in Jesus just like you and just like me. Don't be mystified by that. It wasn't the sacrificial system. It wasn't by doing good deeds or being obedient to God. It was by faith forward in the promised Redeemer that he told us about as soon as sin happened. There's going to be a coming one, seed of the woman. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And from that moment forward, that's the proclamation of Jesus. It was dark. It wasn't fully illuminated. We didn't have his name and we didn't know where he was going to be born yet. But we knew one was coming in whom God put all the hope of humanity. And from that point forward, that's the only hope of humanity and he is the only one in whom humanity should hope. And so they didn't put their faith in the law or their keeping of the law. That's what the Pharisees did, and that's why Jesus scolded them. And he told them, you don't have the faith of your fathers. And we see that on display here. They were justified by faith in God's coming Savior. And this is why Paul said in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know... Not we hope or we suppose or we, we speculate. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's Old Testament Paul here. This is Paul coming out of that Old Testament system, and he says, look, brothers, brothers under the Old Covenant that we're coming out of, understand that none of us are saved by that Old Covenant. Not by the law-keeping, not by the sacrifices. If you're going to heaven, it's because of your faith in Jesus Christ, period. Mic drop, walk away, it's over. How did Noah's saving faith become tangible and concrete, we might ask? What does the scripture say? By faith, Noah constructed an ark. That's pretty tangible. That's pretty concrete. Yeah, the faith came from inside. It was a faith directed toward God, and the faith couldn't be seen except on display and actions taken every day for 120 years. And notice this. There's no keeping that kind of faith private. Too often people seek to privatize faith. The world tells us to keep it to ourselves. Do it at home. Do it at church. Don't do it out here. Heaven forbid we, we practice our faith in public spaces but while faith is personal, it's never private. There's a distinction that we need to catch and we need to hold vigorously to just like our, uh, our First and Second Amendment rights. Faith is personal, yes. Faith is not private. I won't keep it at home. I won't keep it in my church. 
I'll keep it everywhere I want to because I'm commanded to by God and he has more authority than anyone. And that's what we have to see and understand. Even when faith leads to suffering and persecution like it did in every one of these people's lives, remember, we're participants in the cosmic struggle between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ. And we cannot avoid this struggle by hiding our faith from the world. We can't do it. It's not faith if we're hiding it. It's not saving faith. It was obvious that Enoch was gone. There wasn't any hiding that. It was obvious that Abel had an offering that God accepted. It was obvious that Noah believed in the judgment of God. They did it all publicly, and it got them all, it got them all in a predicament. Enoch's doesn't sound so bad, but think about Mrs. Enoch and the children. His faith was painful for them. One day he didn't come home for supper. It wasn't a tragedy. It was sad. It was, it was sorrowful for them. But his faith even cost his family. But in our world of safism, ooh, it's going to cost. Probably not what God's calling me to. What a lie. How can we say that in the face of these examples? We don't believe what we're reading if we can say that. Or we're mindlessly speaking things that don't comport with the, with the word of God. God calls us to a dangerous faith. He calls us to a fearless and, and, and bold faith. And it's a faith that costs. Let me borrow just a few more minutes here. This is not all that Noah did by faith. Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. As a herald, Noah was God's ambassador and proclaimer of the divine word of God's coming judgment. And this is particularly striking when we consider the culture that Noah was raised in and the culture, the people that he was sent to preach to. No other time since Noah has God said this except for maybe that right before Jesus comes back, he might could say it again. But here's what it says in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Because of the gospel, that's not a reality today. Because the gospel is powerful, because Christ is king, because he's commissioned us to take his message to all the world, nations are being saved. Peoples and households and families and, and pagans are coming to Christ by the, by the droves. It wasn't, it wasn't so in Noah's day. Everybody but, but eight people were wicked. If they weren't wicked, God wouldn't have killed them. It was his judgment on the unrighteous. There were eight folks that God saved that day, and the rest he destroyed. That's the context that Noah was sent to preach in. And we talk about our problems. You've heard the expression, first world problems? We got some first world problems with our gospel and evangelism. People are being saved all around the world. It's not eight little meager, lonely souls People are hearing and people are believing. Maybe we're just not speaking. So despite the overwhelming darkness, God sent Noah to shine the light. And even though he was faithful to do this, he saw meager results from his lengthy ministry. In the end, he only had seven other people that were saved from God's wrath as a result of 20, 120 years of faithful gospel ministry. So what do we learn from this? 
First of all, while God often blesses faithful ministry with numerical growth, that's not always the case. Don't look at the, the, the 35,000 auditorium seats churches out there in the, in the western half of the United States and say, that's the blessing of God. There's no gospel message in some of those churches. That's the curse of God. That's a Bibleless faith. That's a religiosity. I would much rather serve in this, this small church here where people truly love Jesus and hear the word preached than to stand in front of 35,000 people that just love up-tempo music and a light show. Praise God for what we've got. God doesn't always bless with numerical growth, though sometimes he does. The true measure of success is one's faithful endurance as God's ambassador to a lost world. That's not just for me or Andrew, that's for you. Are you going to be a faithful ambassador? Because Noah wasn't a preacher, a pastor at least, he was a preacher and so are you. In the same sense he was. He got up every day, he did his job to the glory of God, and he, he declared the truth. Secondly, Noah's story highlights God's grace and mercy. Scripture says that Noah found grace, literally, not just favor, but grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let's fix this, it's been flipped. We tend to think that God saw something in Noah that was deserving of grace. That's a false narrative. This does not mean, when, when it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, just notice the words, Noah found something in the Lord. This doesn't mean that God saw in Noah something deserving grace. It means that when Noah looked to God, he found God to be gracious. God will be gracious if you look to him this morning. The fact of God's graciousness is borne out in that God saved Noah and his family because he didn't have to save anybody. They were all sinners. They deserved hell, just like me, just like you. But God desired to make Noah and his family a trophy of his grace. So when Noah looked at the face of God, he saw a gracious God. God didn't look at Noah and see a man worth saving. He saw a man worth displaying his grace in. Another thing that we can learn here, we're often afraid for our kids. They're surrounded by so much darkness, it seems unlikely that they would ever turn to Christ. I know that pressure. I feel that pressure. That's been a recent concern of mine. But I need to remember, and so do you, that it's not difficult for God to save your kid or my kid from darkness. However, having said that and resting on that firm foundation that God saves whom he chooses, and it's not, a, it, it's not ultimately up to me or you or them, it's up to God who saves, you must, I must continue proclaiming the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to our kids every single day. There wasn't one day that Noah didn't get up and proclaim the gospel through word and through work. That was the means by which he saved his family. There's some hope in that. Focus on those closest to you. Preach the gospel to your children. Children, believe the gospel. Trust in the message that your parents are telling you. Love the Savior that your parents love. Forsake the sins that your parents point out in your life. That's your only hope. And parents, you preaching the gospel to your kids in your home is your task. I preach it here. You preach it there. Be a Noah. Lastly, here in application, before we close, 
Just like Noah, our enduring faith, our enduring faith will inherit righteousness. Noah points us to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Man, that's a lot of Reformation truth right here in Noah's story. And we need to understand that. Enduring faith in your life will inherit righteousness. So in closing, let's draw all this together. God has called us to respond to us, just like Noah, to respond to events as yet unseen. Because he's appointed another day of judgment. This time it's going to be Christ coming back with the wrath and vengeance of God on a wicked world. Only faith in Christ will save you from that wrath. Christ is the second ark, the true ark, the better ark. Will you find refuge in him? He's the plan of salvation that God has prepared for all who believe. He's better than a boat pitched with a pitch. He is the true salvation, the lasting salvation. Will you trust in him? Will you enter into fellowship with him? Another thing we need to see in closing, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Saving faith necessarily produces concrete, tangible action in the life of everyone who possesses it. Saving faith endures, Christian, so keep serving God in faith and pray for continued strength to endure. Two more points, real quickly. Without faith, it's impossible for you to please God. It's another application of what we're talking about this morning. Without faith, it's not just impossible to please God. In theory, it's impossible for you to please God. You can't please God without faith. So nothing you do apart from faith is good. No matter how much affirmation you get from those around you, great job, you're doing so well. But does it please God? It doesn't without faith. So if you're unsure that you possess saving faith, then I invite you this morning to repent. I invite you to trust in Christ. I invite you to turn to Jesus. Because without him, you can't please God. And lastly, without faith, it's impossible to be condemned. Sorry, with faith. Let me say that again. With faith. Get that right. It's pretty important. With faith, it's impossible to be condemned. We need to know that. So praise God for such a great salvation. Now, in the strength that God supplies, go live a life of enduring faith to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We love your word. We love it preached. We love to hear it, God. I love to, to, to declare it. But God, more than just the, the thrill that it gives to us, we love the salvation that it brings. We love the Redeemer it reveals. We love the grace that it imparts, God, and we pray for those things to be taking place today. We pray that you would accompany the preaching of your word by granting repentance and faith to unbelievers. And God, again, just like I started this with, I pray that you would feed and strengthen the faith of your sheep this morning, that you would encourage the faint-hearted, that you would humble the arrogant and the proud, and that you would glorify the only one that pleases you, the true one who pleases you, the one in whom we must be in order to please you. Glorify Jesus. Make much of him today, God, through our lives being transformed through the gospel. We ask these things in his name for his glory. Amen.